this, of course, is week number one in a little series, Advent series, Christmas series, that we're going to do over the next couple weeks, uh, going through Luke chapter one uh, and leading up to Christmas Eve, sort of talking about, um, uh, of course, the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. But however, we're going to begin tonight, or this morning, excuse me, with just how Luke opens up his gospel, which... Uh, for me, is one of the most interesting ways that any of these Gospels, or perhaps even any of these books in the New Testament, opens at all. Uh, notice again how Luke begins this Gospel, the Gospel according to St. Luke, we might say. He says, for as much, and notice a word I want you to notice, keep in your mind, a word that appears quite often in these, in these particular verses. He says, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those Things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Of course, these things that Luke is referring to almost sort of a pseudonym for all of these truths that he's about to articulate. And then I think these verses give us a very, very keen insight into what Luke hopes to accomplish with the rest of this declaration. Or as is also a word for this narrative. It's a narrative that is going to be in exactly and precisely about Jesus Christ. That's these things that he's referring to. But I think also within these verses, it's not just insightful in the sense that we get into Luke's mind. Get into his sort of motivations, his sort of inspiration behind writing this narrative at all. I think actually these things remind us of the things that make up our entire Christian faith. You see, he intended, as he writes there in verse 4, to bring clarity, to bring certainty to the truth that surrounds this man, Jesus of Nazareth. By the time Luke is writing this particular gospel, it has been several years, perhaps a couple of decades, perhaps two, since Jesus' crucifixion. And already there had been news spreading, rumors spreading, opinions spreading about, about this teacher from Galilee who had been tried and crucified as a blasphemer and traitor of Rome. And you see here, I think Luke is stating quite obviously for this man, Theophilus, he wants to set the record straight. Here's what I found out. The things that you've been instructed about, you could be know that they are certain. You can know that they are true. He's reinforcing, he's reaffirming belief, we might say. In that sense, Luke is a very apologetic gospel. In the sense that he is defending. He's perhaps taking up the role of a lawyer, perhaps, we might say. Defending the case of Jesus Christ. Here's what actually happened. And that's his goal throughout this whole book of Luke. And in fact, actually, you might take the books of Luke and Acts together. Because notice, go with me to Acts chapter 1. Just if you've never noticed this before, or if you have noticed before, you could be reminded. But it's so fascinating to me how this, this man, Theophilus, is mentioned twice in Scripture, and yet we know very little about him. Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Acts, the former treatise... Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. So he is referencing Luke. 
that, quote, former treatise is the gospel of Luke. That narrative of all the things that Jesus did. And now, as he's going to engage in the book of Acts, he's saying, here's the aftermath of all those things that Jesus did. Here's the repercussions of all of that. As if to say, this is the truth. And it's changed everything. And it's fascinating to me that this man, again, Theophilus, mentioned twice, and yet nothing is really known. He is uh, perhaps a Greek aristocrat, someone who had a lot of influence, who had a lot of pull in that day and age. Whether he was a Christian or not is not necessarily known for sure, although we can infer from the text in verse 4 of Luke that he is perhaps at least interested in Christianity, enough to be that he's instructed by it. He's He's heard some of these things. These things about Jesus, these recent developments in this new religion called Christianity. And he's at least interested enough for Luke to write this entire gospel for his benefit. For him, he says, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things. My friends, this morning, you are sitting sort of in the seat that Theophilus sits Anyone who sits under the preaching of God's word is, I would say, Lord willing, presented with these same things. The same things that are here throughout Luke's gospel, but here referenced in these first couple of verses. They're the things of the word. The things, as he says, which ought to be most surely believed among us. And what are these things? Well, three quick lessons this morning that I want to bring you through on the things which make up our faith. On the things which I would say we are most surely can believe this morning. The first of all, I want you to notice a lesson about reliable things. A lesson about reliable things. Tradition says that Luke was a Greek man, a Greek scholar and doctor. In fact, he's uh, he's mentioned a couple times in the epistles. Go with me just to kind of get our bearings here a little bit. Go with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians chapter 4. And you'll notice how he is mentioned on a couple of occasions by the Apostle Paul. Colossians 4 verse 14. Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. He here is closing out this letter to the church at Colossae. And he's mentioning how who is with him then none other than this Luke. The physician. Dr. Luke, we might say. Also go with me to the book of Philemon. The book right before the book of Hebrews. And notice what he says there in the book of Philemon. This particular letter. He says in Philemon verse 24. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas again. And Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. As he closes out that beloved letter. And then once more go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just a page is to the left, we might say. 2 Timothy 4, look at verse 9. Paul here, closing out his last recorded letter in all of the Bible, and he says this. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He referring to Timothy. For Demas hath forsaken me. Notice Demas, the one who is mentioned in both cases, has here now fled Paul's presence. Having loved this present world, Paul adds. And is departed to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. But notice verse 11, only Luke is with me. 
This is the same Luke that here is writing this gospel. He is a companion of Paul. A traveler through all of the places, many of the places that Paul went to in the book of Acts. In fact, starting in verse 10 of chapter 16 of Acts, you'll see a word there. A word that you will probably likely gloss over. It's the word we. (laughs) But in fact, that word is actually self-referential. Because that's Luke talking. Whenever you see the word we in the book of Acts, it's inferred that it's Luke talking about the things and the places that he saw and went. The ways in which he saw the gospel work. And that, I think, is one of the most interesting facets to understand the gospel of Luke. That he's writing this after having seen the very truths that he's about to narrate and talk about actually have real world effects. He's with Paul. He's seen what the preaching of Christ does. He's seen what the preaching of the word does to people. Which I have no doubt had a great impact on the way he wanted to approach this particular declaration. Approach organizing this particular narrative. And that's I think one of the things that stands out to me as Luke begins this gospel. He sort of hints at its methodical organization we might say. Notice verse 2 of chapter 1 of Luke again, as he says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He is here sort of noting the fact that he has spent considerable time, Luke has, compiling the testimonies and the accounts. All these various notes from eyewitnesses and ministers from those who had been there. He went out and sought after those who had been with Jesus. Perhaps they were still alive, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. How he he mentions the fact that there were still some, even in that day, who had been with Jesus, who had seen him and had been with him throughout all of his teachings and travels. And here, as he says, Luke notes that he has now acquired this perfect understanding of all things pertaining to this Christ. Perfect there is a word which literally means diligent or exact or accurate. And I I think it's meant to suggest the way in which he has come about this understanding. He has gone about it in a very diligent undertaking to understand history and to ascertain the truth. And as he implies in verse 1, there were many narratives of Jesus already in existence. I think it's fascinating to think about that. Here, Paul and Luke are here traveling. Luke is perhaps going about collecting all of these stories, collecting these testimonies, collecting these accounts, and from which he is going to compile this gospel. And, as he says, there are already in existence other gospels that have already been written. They're already in hand, he says. Other accounts of Jesus Perhaps they were moved with questionable motives. Perhaps they were accounts of Jesus that had questionable truths. You can see here, this is not what Luke is after. He's after dispelling the myths and the misconceptions about Jesus by going to the source and understanding the truth and here declaring it most simply. It wasn't long after Jesus ascended where, for false accounts to begin circulating about who this Jesus was and what he had come to do. 
And I think it's fascinating to think about that aspect as well. That these gospels, these books which make up our New Testament were predominantly written to counter the false narratives that were stirring up the church in those early days. But I think what makes Luke interesting is that he sort of hints at this reliance on outside sources, these eyewitnesses, these other narratives that he's looked at, that he's investigated, whether they were revealing truth or revealing falsehood. He's looked at all of these other documents, which I think ought not to make us scared or confused. Because I, I think if you sit in this congregation, you might, maybe wouldn't put it in these terms, but you would probably affirm what is called verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. <laughs> which is just big words, which come from 2 Timothy 3.16, where it talks about how God inspired the writers, where it literally means he breathed out the words that the writers wrote. This is what we affirm as a church, that the words of scriptures are authoritative. They are true. They are words that we can bank on, that we can rely on, because they are God-breathed, we might say. And here, for Luke to admit that he has done research kind of makes us raise our eyebrows, perhaps. I thought you were inspired. (laughs) I thought you heard this voice, and that's what you wrote from scriptures. I don't know if that's how it happened, (laughs) But I would like to say this as well, that God's Holy Spirit is not relegated to only one mode of inspiration. That being some audible voice from which the writers of scriptures wrote down the things that they wrote. If you believe, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That all scripture is God-breathed. That is something that applies to all forms of inspiration. Even from the stories that Luke recalled, even to the conversations that he was inspired to have, each one of those moments was a moment of God breathing his truth and preserving it, preserving it for us, preserving it for his church, preserving it for his people, meaning that all of it is reliable and all of it is authoritative, whether you can find the source of it or not. You know, I've mentioned on previous occasions that I have somewhat of a frustration, perhaps too much so, I don't know, with the Christian infatuation with signs. And what I mean by that is that there are some, I think, who are waiting or they spend their whole life searching for some sort of sign or evidence or proof that the things that we read about in the Bible are true. So we get all excited when some archaeological dig finds out that, yes, in fact, that the Red Sea was dry when the Israelites walked across it. We we get all excited when we read some sort of uh, historical finding that proves that the Bible is true and it's unmistakable because scholars from Harvard and, and Princeton all acknowledge it. And I don't mean to disparage The use of signs and the use of proofs and evidences. But I do wish to suggest this. That you don't need further signs that God is true. You have it in front of you. The Bible is true. Because it is God's word. The scriptures are your sign. This is your evidence. All the evidence that you need. That God is a reliable God. And that his word is a reliable word. Is sitting right in front of you. This is your sign. Faith 
does not begin after we have collected enough proofs and evidences in the closet to confirm that the things that this Bible records are true and verifiable. I'm reminded of Pilate's question to the Lord Jesus as he was about to be crucified. And he asks, what is truth? I'm reminded of the fact that it was looking in front of him. Truth was staring Pilate in the eyes. My friends, the same is happening to us every time we read the scriptures. Not because we've sourced them. Not because we've found the original documents and we've confirmed, oh yes, these things are true. These things are good and reliable. The truth of God's word is where we start. That's our starting point. That this is the defining truth of all truths. This is the redefining word of God that changes how we live, that changes how we think, that changes who we are. It's a reliable word because it's God's word. Your faith in mine is not dependent upon archaeological digs to corroborate its trustworthiness. This is God's word and you can sense Luke is leading Theophilus to that same point. You've been instructed on these things and these things are true. And he's not encouraging him to go and then scrutinize every source. Here is all the footnotes for the places that I went to to get these stories. That's not what Luke is saying. He's actually saying these words are true. These things are good and reliable because these are the things and the words of the true one. They're the words of God. If you long for a faith that is strong and steadfast and that's able to withstand uh, the swelling tides of disbelief and questioning and doubts and uncertainties, don't wait around for more signs. Don't wait around for more proofs. All the proof you need right is right here in 66 books. That God has preserved it for us. He's preserved his truth for your benefit and mine. And for the growth of the church and the incoming of his kingdom. He's preserved it in his own power. And therefore it is reliable. My friends, if you want a faith that is firm and steadfast, get into the word. We spend so much time perhaps looking for outside sources. When the source is right here. It's the truth of God's word and it's reliable. It's reliable enough for you to plant your entire life on, to stake your whole being on. Luke here is reminding Theophilus and us of the reliable things which he is about to talk about. The reliable things that fill him with delight, that deliver people from sins. He says here that thou mightest know the certainty of those things. This word is reliable. A lesson about reliable things. Secondly, a lesson about factual things. Because notice how Luke contrasts in verse 1. He contrasts the declarations that were already in hand with his declaration, we might say. As he says, for as much as many have taken in hand, there's already documents in hand that talk about Jesus, that have set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, which have been accomplished in our time, he says. But notice verse 3, he says, it seemed good to me also. 
having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first that uh, to set in to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things. He talks about the fact that his declaration, his narrative, would be a little bit different. It would be slightly different from the ones that were already in hand. And not just because it would be inspired. That, of course, is a very marked difference. <laughs> it's inspired by God and preserved by his Holy Spirit for us. But it was also a gospel that was informed he writes here a, we could say, a medical gospel, if you want to use that term, a methodical gospel. As he says there, he wants to write unto thee in order. There's an organization. There is a collection of thoughts and a methodical ordering, a structuring of these thoughts that allow him to say, here's the truth. Here's what happened. Luke is, as we said, a doctor. He's not looking to dazzle any of his readers, most especially Theophilus, with some sort of elaborate and exaggerated account of this miracle man from Bethlehem. That's not what he's looking to do. Actually, in fact, I think if you read the entire Gospel of Luke, he actually just wants the facts to speak for themselves. Such is why you'll notice that he situates his stories within history. Notice verse 5. Listen to how he sets up the time frame and the exact place in which we can know in which these events occurred. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2, the very famous Christmas account. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone unto his own, t- own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house of the lineage of David. And again, and on and on it goes. Throughout the gospel, he's situating his stories within a history that you could know for sure that these are the things that happened in this particular time. And I would say that this is another element which gives us certainty. These are factual things, not made up things. And again, that word certainty in verse 4 of chapter 1 is a word which conveys something much truer and much deeper than just knowledge about something. It conveys a deep and a full understanding. It is actually suggestive of a knowledge of unquestionable truth. He wants him to have in his soul, in his heart, this man Theophilus, Luke wants him to have a firm and full belief of those things. The things about Jesus. Things that wouldn't allow doubt to creep in and rear its ugly head. He was not interested then in writing about speculations. About things Jesus might have said or might have did or perhaps have done. These are the things that Jesus did. That's the sentiment that he's writing to Theophilus in. Again, he's a doctor. He deals in facts. And in fact, that word eyewitness is very impactful. Eyewitnesses there in verse 2 is actually a medical term. 
from which we get our word autopsy. So in a sense, Luke is saying here that his account comes after he's done a detailed autopsy of those things that Jesus has done. It's a detailed declaration that's as sure as a surgeon's post-operation report, which doesn't chronologically list conjecture, but it licks facts that have been found. Here's what happened. And precisely, this is what Luke is doing. Here's what has happened. Those things which you've heard about, those things which you've been instructed in, here it is. Here's the gospel. Here's those things in a nutshell, we might say. And such, I would say, is what we have this morning as well. You have a gospel of facts. I think there's one thing that has shaped and molded my faith, I would say, at a very fundamental level. It is this, that I have the assurance that my faith is not built on speculation. It's built on facts. That's our message. When you go out and you talk to a neighbor, talk to a friend, talk to a coworker, talk to someone in the grocery store about Jesus... You're sharing the gospel with them. You're not sharing some speculative thing, some nebulous truth that only exists in realms of thought or theory. It's not some whim of your imagination that you're talking about. This gospel that we have and that we share is not a, a series of rumors and hope so's that I hope that this is true and I hope that this is how it turns out and I hope that these things are really what happened. The gospel would never have been made up if it was left up to us to make up. We would have never come up with the scheme of redemption that God has here constructed and established from the beginning of time. From from the foundations of the world, it says, this lamb was slain. It's been planned from the beginning that God would save his people from their sins. This is our gospel. It's a fact according to God's wisdom. It's not some vague idea. To make life better. We don't preach the gospel. To just make our spirits lighter. And put smiles on our faces. As the world crumbles around us. Knowing that this is just. uh, How we make sense of life. And how we get through it. The gospel is real. The good news. These things. Luke would say. These are factual things. My message is concerned with factual facts. <laughs> Which are concerned only with this one, Jesus Christ. God's begotten son. And as he would go on to talk about throughout the rest of his gospel. That he was a real person. And as we find out in chapter 2. He really descended and really took on flesh. And really lived a real life with real people. Dwelling with them and dining with them. And delivering them from sin and from sickness. Ultimately dying a very real death. It's a message Of facts, these things that Luke sets to strive to put in order. And such is our resolve. Again, when we share the gospel, we're not sharing some hopeful theory of religion, we're sharing a gift. 
A gift that's true and that's real. We're not relaying a story of make-believe, of something that we've pretended. We are reporting the facts of God's salvation. Which means when you share the gospel, no matter what type of form it takes, you are assuming the role of a news reporter. You're just relaying the facts. Any reporter worth their salt does not go on record with possibilities and hypotheticals. They report what has happened. Here's what has just happened. Which makes me always cringe when I see those weather reports. See the weatherman and he's holding on to a pole because the hurricane is blowing him. Blowing him away. And you see a guy in the background just casually walking in the background. Have you seen those? They make me laugh. They make me chuckle. Because it makes the reporter's report not very factual. He's conjuring up some other narrative. He's conjuring up some other declaration that hasn't been based in eyewitness accounts. My friends, that's not your role. That's not what you're doing when you're sharing the gospel. You are announcing facts, things that are true, things that are based on the wisdom of God, not man's wits, not man's abilities. These are the things which are most surely believed among us, as Luke says. They are the things which Jesus has accomplished. It's already done. And this is what gives us certainty, as he says here. Certainty to, in knowing these things. This is our stability in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of times in which people have all sorts of narratives and conspiracies, conspiracies on the way the world works and why the world is doing what it's doing. We come back. To a gospel of factual things. Reliable things. Lastly, thirdly. A lesson about redemptive things. Because I would say. That if the gospel that we have here. If the Bible that we have in front of us. Was only reliable and only factual. It would be comforting perhaps in one degree. But it would be nothing to us. If it didn't speak to us the words of redemption. The factuality and the reliability of, the God, of God's word would be as influential to us as a chemistry textbook. Which tells us real things. It tells us true things. Things that we can be sure are facts, but it doesn't mean anything to us. Unless, I guess, if you're a chemist. <laughs> but here, this word that you have in front of you, God's word, the scriptures... They're reliable and they're factual and they tell us about the redemption that God has orchestrated orchestrated from the very beginning of time. From before time. There has been a redeemer that has been provided for us. This is what the Bible is all about. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we have one story, 66 books telling one story, like facets of a diamond. They reflect and they show forth the brilliance of this story, the story of redemption. In fact, if there's one word that could summarize Luke's gospel, it's that word, the word salvation. 
That's the primary concern of all of these chapters. These 24 chapters of his narrative seem to showcase the way in which Jesus was the Savior and what that means. And not just the Savior of Israel, mind you, but the Savior of the world. That's what this gospel is. If the gospel of Matthew is showing forth that Jesus, yes, was indeed the Old Testament Messiah now brought into their time. He is the Christos, the king. The king of Israel, mind you. Here, this gospel of Luke is showing that he is the light of the world. Such is why he makes that beloved promise in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. That wonderful verse we sing on Christmas Eve. We sing about and write about. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It's this Savior who brings great tidings and of glad and gladness and joy for all people. This is his concern. Notice... Just look at it. You don't have to. Well, I'm not going to read all the verses. But if you look at uh, chapter 3 of Luke. Luke chapter 3 and look at verse 23. Because from there to the end of the, the chapter. He records his genealogy. If you remember. Luke, Matthew has one as well. Matthew has a genealogy in chapter 1. Which connects Jesus to many people in the Old Testament of note. But Luke's is slightly different. Especially because he connects Jesus to his father, Joseph, as he does in verse 23. And ultimately, he connects him to Adam in verse 38. Here, I think, what Luke is doing is showing thus who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man. The perfect Son of Man, as is the theme of Luke's entire gospel. He was a Savior who came and was like us, yet without sin. To undo all of the vast and grievous effects of sin. Here, I think one of the great, uh, wonderful truths of this particular genealogy is that he connects him to Adam. The, and, and we note from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the last Adam. Who came to undo the failure of the first. And this, of course, is also why Luke records the nativity. That beloved chapter, Luke chapter 2, that we read. Is connecting us to two specific things. Jesus' manhood and Jesus' perfection. He's the son of man. Made like us. Came into the world like us. He had flesh. He had eyeballs that could see. He had sweat glands that produced sweat. He had a nose that ran with snot sometimes. His mom had to change his diaper. And yet, what does the Bible say? He is without sin. It is showing us and demonstrating to us how perfectly planned this redemption was. From the beginning of time, from before time, God had established the scheme of redemption. Wherein one who was made like us would save us from ourselves. And here, this is... An amazing point for Luke to establish. Remember, Luke's readers were likely Greek. Of course, the learned and the intellectual individuals of that particular day. And the Greek conception of gods 
was altogether different than this conception of God. The Greeks had gods who were connected with supernatural. They had powers beyond us, even though they were often brought down by ones and those who were among us. The Greek gods were more like superheroes. They were entirely unlike those who said that they believed in them. They were inaccessible. They were unapproachable. They they were not able to be imitated. Who can go out and live a life like Zeus? Not very inspiring. And yet then how different is this gospel? Luke is here demonstrating that it's entirely different. The things in which you've been instructed, they talk about redemption. And they reveal to us that this God has come down in the ultimate form of accessibility and approachability. So much so that shepherds are drawn to him. So much so that the weak ones of the world come and flock to his feet. And he doesn't turn away women and children. Everyone comes into his presence because he's the ultimate, supreme, approachable, accessible savior. That's the theme. If you read Luke's gospel, he mentions Women more often, he mentions children more often, he mentions the outcast. He has the story of the penitent thief on the cross. He has the stories of salvation, which confirm to us that this salvation isn't just for a set group of people. It's for the world, for all who would come and believe in these things. And such is what we have this morning. You have a A gospel, you have a faith that is reliable, that is factual, that talks about redemption. Therefore, when you step out the doors, you don't have to be afraid or ashamed of the things that you say you believe. Perhaps some would like to disparage you for the things that you say you believe. They would like to make fun and ridicule of those old antiquated truths that you read about in the Bible. Those those ways in which you've had to instruct and construct your life. My friends, this morning we can step out of the doors of this church as the body of Christ. Confirmed in what we know. Confirmed with the certainty of these things in which we have been instructed. That this gospel is reliable and factual. And it leads to the redemption of man. And ultimately the redemption of the entire universe. And it all started. With a God who came down. And took on flesh. When we are celebrating Christmas, when we're celebrating this time of year, we're celebrating that fact. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel walked the very dirts on which we've walked. He's felt the same earth, breathed the same air. He's come To save us from ourselves this morning. If you're doubting. If you're questioning this faith. You've watched one too many YouTube conspiracy videos. About how this Bible is not true. You've read one too many blog articles. About the reasons why you should distrust. The things that come out of the church. 
I would tell you this morning that this book is true. It's not just because I believe it, but I do. (laughs) This Bible is the word of God. And he gives it to us that our faith may stand on the reliable and factual redemption that he has effected through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here this morning. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer.